Episode 103 of the Small Business Big Marketing Show. This is the episode where I get a little bit reflective and then speak to someone doing a mountain of good. Welcome to the Small Business Big Marketing Show, where successful small business owners share their secrets to take your marketing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Tim Reid. G'day everyone and welcome back to Australia's number one ranking small business marketing podcast. I'm your host, Timbo Reid. You're a motivated small business owner wanting to do crackingly good marketing and we are brought to you by the very good folk at Net Registry who are all about getting your business sorted online. I'll tell you why in one tick why I'm feeling a little bit reflective And then we're going to get stuck into what is an incredibly inspiring interview I did only yesterday. Now, um, let me tell you, Net Registry will help you get sorted online, and they are in the midst of putting together three fantastic packages for the small business owner, just like you, to be able to either get your business started online, to do a website refresh, or and or to help your business grow online, to get it found online. And they are exclusive packages for small business marketers, for listeners of the Small Business Big Marketing Show, putting the finishing touches on them, and we'll be able to detail them in next week's episode, and I'll put them on the website. The guys at Net Registry, Karen and all the other guys have put together this package with you in mind, and it's incredibly well-priced and got some real value in there. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, visit netregistry.com.au and see what they've got for you. Now, feeling a little bit reflective because the interview I've got coming up is actually with a social enterprise out of Melbourne who are doing fantastic things um, helping homeless young people uh, get employment, uh, get qualifications, get housing, get help, uh, and really get their lives together. And it was just an incredibly moving interview with uh, a girl, Rebecca Scott, who has gone and left her job as a scientist at the CSIRO and um, just started this charity with her partner uh, from zero. And she's gone from zero to hero. And it just got me thinking, you know, and, and actually added to that, I have just done another interview for next week's show uh, where I interview this guy out of Philadelphia whose little cafe uh, in a Philadelphia market has just won Sandwich of the Year. And he, he was such a humble guy and he was just all about creating a quality product and was the first to say, you know what, I'm not the best business guy going around, he says to me, but his whole belief, and he's been doing this, it's fourth generation, um, it was all about quality. And it just got me thinking, um, you know, we're so lucky, uh, A, to be in Australia or whatever country you're in, you know, if you're listening to this, you may work, you're probably going on my Google Analytics based in America or the UK or Australia. We're lucky to live where we are. If you're listening to this, you're probably a small business owner you're lucky to be a small business owner. I, I, you know, sometimes we've just got to remind ourselves um, of just how lucky we are. I've done a lot of work recently with larger companies, with some corporates. Um, they, they can be good fun to work with, but they can also be frustrating. And, you know, I reflect on my time um, in working in large corporates, and I guess my frustration is their inability to move quickly and as small business owners, that's what we have. We have the ability to to move quickly, to make decisions, 
to change, to try new things without having to go through long lines of approval, um, without having to research something to death um, and just have a crack. And I just think we're really lucky to be able to do that. And I also think we have a real ability to make a difference in people's lives. And um, certainly that's what I got out of speaking to Rebecca. Um, I'm sort of reflecting at the moment on how, you know, I already think small business, big marketing in terms of the emails I get every day, you know, is making an impact on people's lives. But it also got me thinking about how I can be more overtly um, impacting on maybe those less fortunate. And um, I certainly want to get involved in what Rebecca's doing a bit more, putting some thought into that. I hope you do too. Rebecca's charity, Rebecca's social enterprise, if you like, is called Street, S-T-R-E-A-T. Um, it, it's a wonderful story. Um, it's motivating. Um, it's all about the social enterprise. It's all about social commerce, doing good and making money at the same time. It can be done. So enough of that. As I said, a little bit reflective, also very excited by what's coming up in the coming weeks because just some, some golden interviews. Enough of that. This is all about you and what you can learn from this interview with Rebecca. So grab that pen and paper, grab a cuppa and enjoy this interview. Here's Rebecca. Well, Rebecca Scott, thank you so much for joining us on Small Business Big Marketing. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, tell me, I'm going to go straight for the big hard question first. <laughs> Far away. Righto. What do you love about a good sporran? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, I am so daggy. Uh, look, first of all, I love kilts. And yeah. so you'll often find me wearing a kilt. Yeah. But I think a sporran is like that perfect thing that. You know, like a man bag without being a man bag. Yeah. And if you're a girl who wears kilts, you're always going, well, hang on a second, what am I going to have for my handbag? And it looks kind of dorky if you wear a handbag, you know, with a kilt. So I've made myself a couple of sporrans. You made? How, yeah. how does one go about making sporrans? I made sporrans? my own sporrans. <laughs> well, mine are pretty girly sporrans. So there, uh, there's, a, uh, there's one I essentially made from a really, really cool handbag and ended up right. attaching kind of, you know, a longer thing to go around your waist. Well, it sounds so daggy and I'm, I can't believe I'm actually having this conversation. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> well, this is a problem going, what, what are you talking about sporrans for? <laughs> on, on, on Rebecca's um, profile on the street website, um, it has some stuff, you know, about each of the staff members, each of the employees, each of the team, and Rebecca expressed her love of sporrans. So I thought that would be a good place to start, <laughs> but let's get, stuck into, let's get stuck into the serious side. You call yourself a social entrepreneur. Now, I'm going to play Mr. Ignorant here. What is a social entrepreneur and what is a social business or a social enterprise? Oh, geez. Look, mm. terms that are still debated hotly even amongst the social enterprise community. So, But I'll, I'll give you my take on it. I guess uh, a social entrepreneur is someone who is entrepreneurial, but they uh, put their entrepreneurial spirit to um, to social purposes, you know, so are coming, I guess, from a social justice perspective in their motivation for why they're doing that entrepreneurial activity. Um, in that vein, then, a social enterprise is essentially a, a hybrid organisation that's kind of half non-profit, half for-profit, and it's using business means, so it's using the marketplace to bring about social change. 
Okay, well, that's pretty succinct. Is that, uh, it's a little bit long-winded, but, it, but it's really profit and purpose merged together. Are you, are you well, this is a, a kind of an assumptive question, but are you disappointed there's not enough social enterprises out there? Absolutely. And look, I'm not, I'm not disappointed. I'm realistic about where the sector is up to in Australia. So even though we've got social enterprises that have you know, been around for many, many, many years, lots of people would be interacting with them and not even knowing that some of those enterprises are social enterprises. But I, um, I guess what I am very aware of in the sector that you know, there's still a lot, lot more we could be doing to, to be building more. I, I kind of think about it as an ecosystem. We've got lots and lots of you know, businesses and, and for-profits and we've got lots of traditional non-profits um, but we still don't have the big enough, you know, that, that middle space where where business and, and um, non-profit, you know, or purpose-driven organisations come together. So I'd like to see a lot, lot more happen there and I'd like to be involved in a lot more over time, I guess, because, you know, we've, we've learned a lot, tried a lot, you know, over the last, you know, five years, but there's still just so much that we can do to, to increase what's out there. Early days. Do you, do you, do you think it's okay... Um for a business who is socially conscious, has has a social conscience, to put their hand up and use that as part of their marketing or should it be something that is more at a philanthropic level? I've got a view on this and I'll, I'll a bit of a story behind it, but what do you think? Um, I think it is absolutely valid for them to do that. I, uh, It's worth mentioning that I think that there's a, there's a whole spectrum. If we're thinking of the kind of, I, I guess, in kind of typology terms, if, if you know, if your left hand is um, is the non-profit sector and your right hand is the for-profit sector, and you put them quite a long way apart, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in that middle space. That you know, you would go from the left-hand side, you would go well. There's you know, non-profits there, and probably kind of more down that end, uh, community enterprises, and then you've got kind of social enterprises, kind of smack bang in the middle, and then you've got social businesses. Um, kind of a little bit to the right of that again and then mm. you've got what I would say is socially responsible businesses and then I would just say there's there's other you know there's other businesses that aren't really giving much thought to that and that that whole spectrum is getting very very blurry the thing um, the thing that upsets me I guess most in this space is when I see businesses who who are spraying an essence of either, you know, good environmental or social practices over their business when it's actually not really the way they operate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we call it, you know, in the environmental space, you call it greenwashing. Yeah, I have right. my own term for what it is when it's social washing. I call it swashing. So, you know, you see greenwashing and swashing happening all the time in the, what I would say sometimes is, businesses, if you look at their operations globally or even nationally, are often operating in ways that I would see as quite unethical in some of their business practices, but they're getting the marketing advantage of this little bit of essence that they mm. spray over here. And 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 I think they often in the marketplace get a competitive advantage for those stories that they're telling. So what I would like to see, I, I think, is this, is I guess two things. One is having an ability as a person running one of these enterprises to start to say, well, hey, if over here you've got this, you know, one cent in every thousand cents is being given, you know, to cause-related marketing, 
Well, over here, 100% is being given. You know, what you've got in a social enterprise um, and businesses that are completely mission-driven, you've got the whole, you know, all of that profit in most cases is being mm. reinvested. So if you're, if you're a customer who is trying to work out, do I buy this product or do I buy that product? You know, they're, they're side by side. The quality of those products, let's assume that they're exactly the same product, but one's coming from a social enterprise and one's coming from a from a business that that is, you know, doing a little bit but not much. I'd like to make sure that, that the social enterprise is getting the full weight of that story yep. in their marketing because they, they, they are just doing, they're bringing about so much more social change for that purchase. So if, for if, me, if, it's if, about... Go on. No, go for it. I was just going to For say, me, if, it's if, about getting the social enterprises more savvy at marketing, and it's also making sure that those, you know, those corporates that are doing very, very strong things in the CSR space are getting airplay, but not at the expense of the ones that just have big marketing budgets. And this is not just about well, this this show is not about corporates at all. It's about small businesses, and there's no reason why a small business can't uh, just as much uh, involve themselves socially as as a big business. In fact, I probably I don't I don't have no idea of the numbers, but there's probably a whole lot more uh, small businesses out there aligning themselves with a the cause than there are big businesses in a relative sense. Look, I think. I think that's probably true. I don't have stats either, but no. I know from a very personal perspective, we we have probably more small businesses that have come to us and said, "Hey, I run a bakery, and I'd really like to to try and give you, uh, you know, reduce the cost of goods or, of bread that I can give you." And in some cases, you know, people in our own supply chain saying. Actually, you're you know you're in my community, and I want my business to be able to help my community where I can. So, so either it might be a, a discount, you know, on occasions it's um, you know donations for events mm. or things, all things coming in at cost price. So, now for an organisation like ours, you know, being able to reduce that cost of goods makes a really really big difference, particularly if every cent of your profit is going back into the mission. I can imagine. That's just all money that being, isn't being used on your cost of goods. It's being used on, on your mission-related work. So I, I've been absolutely overwhelmed by the generosity of small businesses in our own community who think about how their little business can help an organisation like ours. I've got a really nice example at the moment. Um, we had a small publishing company come to us a year ago and say, hey, we're doing a small cookbook. We would like to feature you guys in the cookbook. And we were delighted. They came back to us and said, well, actually, we think the sale of the cookbook could could be a little fundraiser for you guys. So they did a fundraiser with um, when they published the book. That fundraiser, uh, they raised $4,000. And then they came back to us and said, well, why don't we use our skills as a small publisher and use that $4,000 that we raised to help you do your own cookbook. Well, that Love cookbook it. goes, our own street cookbook goes off to the printer this week and we will end up using all of the proceeds from our own cookbook to fund our new cafe at Melbourne Central later and, this and year. And I tell you what, so that, that will be a... Act, 
that, that, that cookbook will be such a powerful, um, uh, sorry to bring it back to marketing, but that will be such a powerful marketing tool for you to um, bring on additional partners and sponsors because it's like, a, it's a glorified yeah. business card, you know, it's it's that, it's a business yeah. card on steroids and the amount of guests that I've had on this show over the last few weeks that actually have books, the guys from the Little Veggie Patch Company are into their second book. I've got, yes. uh, got a terrific one, yeah. Absolutely terrific. Um, hey, listen, before, we, we've kind of stepped ahead. We haven't even talked talked about street so you've explained social enterprise <laughs> you've explained social entrepreneurism you've gone out and put your uh, walk the talk basically so 2008 2009 you start this social enterprise called street s-t-r-e-a-t love the name where did it come from beck not the name the idea yeah look i had um i'm a long way from where i started my professional career as a as a young scientist so, uh, but after I trained as a scientist, I worked for the CSIRO for a decade and I was actually on some annual leave uh, in Vietnam, in Hanoi, and stumbled upon this uh, little cafe over there called Koto and it was a, a cafe that was providing training and employment to homeless young people in, in Vietnam. And it was honestly like this light bulb moment for me. It, I had never thought that you could solve large, intractable social issues any other way other than the welfare system. It was just what I knew. And and I'd always done a lot of volunteer projects and community development and also international development projects kind of on the side in my spare time. Mm-hmm. So I was very, you know, I'd certainly been thinking a lot about, about international and community development, but I had never experienced social enterprise. Um, well, it, I hadn't knowingly experienced social enterprise. And it was just all of these things connected in my brain all of a sudden and I still remember that that night when I rang my partner and uh, who was back here in, in Australia and just said, I've just discovered this most extraordinary thing and it's what I want to do. And Did, can you just I, on, just on that, let me stop you there because that's what I want to do. So you've you're literally CSIRO scientist, ten years. You've gone over to Vietnam. You've just seen this social enterprise that's blowing you away. And and, and have you had what we would term an epiphany? <laughs> I've absolutely had an epiphany. Oh, I love that. And it sounds it sounds. I don't know. It sounds naive or kind of daggy or or like I don't make strategic decisions, you know, and I'd like to think that, you know, I, when I, you know, I stick at things, you know, I was at CSIRO mm. for a decade. I, I certainly, you know, I certainly, I was at CSIRO because I believe strongly in, you know, in bringing about change. But as a scientist um, too, Rebecca, trying to make the world a better place. As a scientist, an epiphany, there is no scientific proof of epiphany. So like you've really, um, you've listened yeah. to something that, you know, is, that, that maybe well, clearly it's gone and changed your life. So you've rung your partner, and what's happened? <laughs> I've rung my partner, Kate, and said to her, "I think we need to move to Vietnam." And she just said, uh, "That's quite a big call." And, <laughs> and she was a she'd been at DFAT as a public servant for for quite a number of years, and so it was a big call to get this kind of phone call from a different country, you know, all of a sudden there's this, you know, this great big idea. And she came to Vietnam. I was over there doing some, um, doing a consultancy project with World Vision. So I'd taken some annual annual leave and and was doing some volunteer work over there. So I was over there for three months. And she came over and and visited me partway through that and said, well, you know, I can see how passionate you are about it. Um, 
you know, I'll support you if that's what you want to do. And I ended up coming back to Australia and leaving CSIRO. I took my long service leave um, and started working for Koto. And I was doing a combination of uh, helping run their Australian operations because they were they were established by an Australian Vietnamese man. Mm-hmm. So I started setting up their Australian arm and also doing some projects in Vietnam as well. And after a couple of years, it was really it was really working very much kind of sleeves rolled up in that organisation. It just kept on getting under my skin, really, or just kept on nagging at me that Australia had thousands upon thousands of homeless young people in you know here and what was I going to do about my own community and so it really got me thinking a lot about well if I you know if we were going to build something that was similar what would we need to do how would we do it what what would be similar to the Vietnam enterprise what would be different and it just it started me on this amazing journey of looking at best practice around the world and then coming back to Australia and saying, okay, let's build one of these things. Um, Kate and I were living in, in uh, Canberra and we realised that Canberra was just too small to build street, particularly as we're trying to build a scalable model, which, mm-hmm. which really means the more cafes that we can run, the more young people we can help. Really. Can, I, can I just stop you there? So, so can you explain yeah. what is the essence of street? What is street? So we provide homeless young people between the age of 16 and 25 with training in hospitality. They're with us for a period of six months and across that six months we give them a certificate too in hospitality. But all the all the reasons that they became homeless in the first place, it might be family breakdown or drugs and alcohol or mental health issues or gambling, all, a whole range of issues, we, we are having to address all of those issues at the same time with those young people. So uh, we have to obviously find our young people accommodation. We need to, you know, if, if they've got an existing drug and alcohol issue, we need to deal with that. So we're, we're really, I guess, integrating all, trying to sort out, you know, stabilise many of the issues that they had there, but by building a highly flexible business to ensure that they can continue to, to you know, get the first you know, get their first qualifications, get the first thing on their CV. Now, now this training, Rebecca, is, is um, this training, and, and I, listeners, I'm not talking over Rebecca, but this line has a, has a slight delay, so we'll, we'll just go with it. But, yeah, sorry um, about that. Yeah. What, what, what I was going to say is this training, what, I think the one of the things you missed is that you're not just sending these young people, these homeless young people in Melbourne off to college. What you've actually got is, if I'm right, you've got two cafes, you've got a coffee roasting business, you're actually you have businesses that you put them into to learn hands-on, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. So a typical week for our young people across the six months, Mondays they're always dealing with those like kind of life issues and we would be doing a lot of life skilling on Mondays. Tuesdays they're always at TAFE. So that's, you know, in the classrooms at TAFE doing their both kind of theory and and also some practice stuff in the the, um, training kitchens. And then Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, they're always completely embedded in, within our business and rostered on across our three cafes. So they would be getting in those cafes very specific skills. So um, every five or six weeks, they well, they are in each cafe site for five or six weeks and then they rotate to the next cafe. So in a particular cafe, they would be mentored one-on-one with either a chef or a barista 
and they would be getting very specific skills. So if you were at our coffee cart at Melbourne Central, you would be learning how to become a barista across six weeks. If you're in our large Flemington cafe in the kitchen, you would be doing lots and lots of production kitchen work with our chefs. So what what we would be hoping is by the time you came to the end of the six months and we were working with you to find your first job in, in the hospitality industry, you would not only have got the skills and now had six months of, of really solid you know, experience within a number of cafes, but you would also have a bunch of the things that have meant that you know you that were barriers for you earlier. Those things would also be that much more stabilised. Listeners, I'm speaking to Rebecca Scott, who's co-founder of the social enterprise Street S T R E A T dot com dot au. I'm really going to encourage you to check it out, Beck. What, what I'm really interested in, and and listeners, go and check out. Go and see the cafes, go and see how this whole operation works, go and buy the coffee that they roast and grind and package online. It's all there um, to get involved with. But Beck, tell me more about, because I think it's fascinating, you know, you've got a scientist and a public servant who live in Canberra, <laughs> who come to Melbourne, who start this social enterprise called Street that gives young people training in hospitality in your own cafes and, and businesses. Um, I'm really interested in how you get you get that off the ground and make it happen. Um, obviously, when you started, you, you didn't own these cafes. Um, did you start with some, some street carts or h- how did you actually get this business up and running? Oh, look, if, if you see us now, we, we seem like we're, a, you know, a, well, still a small business, but we've got, yeah. you know, multiple cafes that we have and, you know, about, you know, 30 staff. But if you'd even come one year ago, we were still two tiny little food carts, um, you know, minute little operation and, you know, a small handful of young people. But I guess what we've tried to do from the beginning is lay the foundations of what could be a business that could scale and grow over time. So a lot of our work in the early days was building either the business processes that could scale. So so making sure even if we were running small operations that, that there were a bunch of systems and processes within those that could scale as soon as we ended up with, you know, with cafes or bigger operations. And then we, we were very, very fortunate earlier this year when a Another, um, well, yeah, another group that owned um, a number of cafes and a, and a coffee roasting business approached us and said, hey, we're going to sell our businesses, but we want to sell them to you. Um, can you buy us? So we, um, we scrounged and scrounged and found investors who came on board to, to help us purchase them because as a you know, homeless youth charity, we didn't have whole bunch of cash reserves sitting in the so, so how do you do that? What did um, you do? Did you kind of call on a network? Are you well connected? Did you put the big presentation together and just start knocking on doors, cold calling? What did you do to get that? How much did you need to raise? <laughs> <laughs> so many questions, um, so little time. Yeah, look, <laughs> a number of hundreds of thousands we needed to raise. But my partner and I um, are not from wealthy families. We're, we're very much working class kids. We we arrived in Melbourne knowing no one, so it's not like we have a, a very large network of high net worth individuals or you know rich families um, who helped us. What we did is we looked around for organisations or philanthropic foundations who were starting to think differently about uh, about the money that they um, were 
not only granting to different causes, but also we're starting to think about their money that they could invest. So if you imagine a large philanthropic foundation, the philanthropic foundation has a whole bunch of money called its corpus, and that corpus is invested in a whole bunch of, you know, normally normally they're in, you know, they've got a fund manager or investment managers who, who have a responsibility to to look after all the investments. You know, they've got a portfolio of investments and they'd be getting a return on those investments. And by law, they have to grant 5% of that corpus every year in mission-related donations. Mm-hmm. Now, where what we said is, look, you know, you've got the little bit of money dripping out the end of these big philanthropic foundations every year, but why don't why don't we start thinking entirely differently about that money? Now, to give you a sense, in Australia we have what's called PAFs or private ancillary um, funds. They're the, they're the the funds that you know wealthy families have and they've set up. And now most of those are invisible. You know, those those families will be investing in causes that they're passionate about. But in Australia, we have $10 billion sitting in the investment or those corpus investments of those paths. So so the money is there already allocated for philanthropic purposes, but it's the 5% that's dripping at the end of all of that, which is a, you know, a far smaller amount. So we, I guess what we've done is we've said, what if we can start to think differently about that corpus money and, hey, why not put us in that investment portfolio and we will provide a return on investment. So, nice. so we are we are in a business relationship yep. and we were then went looking for the most progressive philanthropic foundations that we could, you know, that we could find mm-hmm. who were starting to think differently. And so so how, how, them, how do you identify uh, a progressive philanthropic organisation? We were fortunate enough um, to have one of them as one of our landlords. So the Donkey Wheel, Donkey Wheel Foundation, they had already taken a number of steps and what you'll often see in the philanthropic space is foundations that are already starting to, to make sure that some of their corpus funds are ethically invested. So that's kind of the first step that lots of these foundations have taken. But the Donkey Wheel Foundation has gone well, well beyond that and tried to align, you know, the majority of its investments mm-hmm. with mission-related work as well. So they were the very first to put their money where their mouth was and put us in their investment portfolio. And then we found three other similar organisations. So another one is Small Giants, which is a small company, but it, it is an investment, you know, an impact investment company that tries to find businesses like ours that are bringing about both social and, and you know, social or environmental change, but also can provide a return on investment on that, you know, of that money put up. So, so, so Rebecca, you, you, you found these, sorry to cut you off there, I'm very conscious of time with you, but I also want to hear about your marketing and how you go about actually promoting what you actually, because essentially you're a small business owner at the end of the day, you've got the, you know, you've got these oh, social absolutely. enterprises, but you've got to do marketing. Before we talk marketing, um, and, and, you know, by, so with the, the, the moral of that story is you raise the money to buy those cafes and where yep. you are now today versus 2009, vastly different. Can you put some numbers around street? Can you give us a sense of turnover, staff, graduates, how many cuppers you've sold in the last two or three years? Give us, quantify the, the street business. Yeah, sure. 
We've just hit a, a fairly major milestone uh, last month, which was serving 250,000 uh, customers or making you know, 250,000 different you know, meals or coffees. And um, we are now, you know, we will be we will be reaching that next 250,000 a lot, lot, lot faster now that we have, you know, three cafes. Um, from a business turnover perspective, this uh, this financial year it'll be sitting around two million. Um, and what probably what's most important, rather than a turnover perspective, is to understand um, our revenue model. So we, we as a social enterprise are trying, the holy grail for us is to get to a point where every, you know, all of our expenses are met by, by the profit that we're getting from our business operations. Mm-hmm. Now, as you can imagine, the cafes that we compete with, you know, our next door neighbours and those across the road from us and all of those others that we're competing openly in the marketplace with don't have youth workers, they don't have psychologists, they don't have... All, a whole bunch of extra expenses that we that we have that they don't have. So, so in in you know one sense, if we you know we we start as a highly unprofitable business, you know we we are just fighting with you know trying to compete yeah. with one hand tied behind our back the whole time. Now, I would think we have a marketing advantage, so that goes you know we've got a value proposition that is is different to most of those other competitors. Mm-hmm. Now, I hope longer term that 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 means that it all evens out in the wash. But what it means is for the first number of years, we are not going to be anywhere near break even. We are, you know, as a business, we are, you know, we are needing to bring in a substantial amount of revenue through grant, you know, grants and fundraising and donations. So to give you a sense, the first year of our operations, our business covered 0% of our overall expenses. Year two, our business covered 3%. Year... Uh, three, our business covered 20%. This last financial year, it was at 40%, and this year we're wanting it to be 60%. Well done. So, so you know, we are absolutely tracking exactly the way we would want to be tracking, but there is still a hole every year that I'm needing to find through grant raising and fundraising and donations and, and you know, that campaign sort of stuff. So, so there's still a very big hole in my budget every year because we're a social enterprise, but we would hope that by 2015, our business was essentially profitable enough and had scaled enough that, that you know, we had, we had reached that holy grail. Did you, now, lean on your, say, um, did you lean on your marketing, your value proposition um, in order to market the business? So if I was to walk into a street cafe, am I immediately, is it going to become immediately obvious to me that I'm being served by someone who is being brought out of homelessness into employment and education? Or is it something that, you know, I'm going to trip over? How do you use that? I've changed the strategy for that quite substantially over time. So when you first came to us when we had our first little you know, food cart um, and coffee cart, you, you would come, you know, plastered right across the front <laughs> yeah. of that um, cart was the word, you know, were the words, stop homelessness the delicious way. So you couldn't, unless you were blind, you couldn't mm-hmm. not see that something about this enterprise, you know, is connected to homelessness. 
And then when you when you came to the cart, uh, you would get a loyalty card that would tell you more about that. There would be some information on there that would explain that we're you know that we're a training and a tr- training provider for homeless young people. So it was a little bit more overt. And I, what we have done, I, I think there's two major messages for us. There's a there's there's the message of hey, this is a very good product and it's and it's for a good price. And then we've got that social message that's there. And I, uh, depending on the audience, I turn the volume up of those two messages differently. Mm-hmm. And I have, we've got more and more um, sophisticated, I think, in, in working out when the vol- where the volume has to be, or where the volume set for both yep. of those messages. So I, you are not hit over the head with that message the second that you walk into the cafe. So no longer now, you know, unlike the days when we had a cart, if you came, if you walked past one of our cafes, that same, you know, tagline is not branded right across the front of the, the, the window. That, you know, that, that would be our equivalent now to what our branding was in the past, that we'd have this enormous sign on our window that says that. But the second that you walk into the cafe and you sit down, um, you would be handed, a, you know, the menu. But it's a, there's a page sitting on the top of that menu that is a personal letter from me. Story. Now, that letter from me changes every single month. So every single month I write to our customers and I tell them where we're up to at the moment. So what's happening? What's happening at Street this month? So it might be... Um, last month I wrote to all of our customers and said, hey, our next class of young people are just now starting in this cafe, so please welcome, you know, here's the eight young people that you'll see new in this business, you know, uh, this month. Please make them feel really super welcome. Um, and what I'm wanting as a customer, you to feel is a, you, you absolutely feel a connection to the fact that the purchase that you're just making is bringing about real change. But for me, it's really important that it's not just this generic, impersonal, you know, message. For me, I've gone more and more and more personal with those messages that when you sit down, it feels quite intimate, the communication that we're doing mm-hmm. with you. That rather than kind of hit you over the head with cause-related marketing... What we want to do is we want you to come back. Obviously, we want you to keep coming back. And we want you to be able to build up a far broader picture of the organization with that repeat repeat purchase. So I want you to know next month, hey, this is the next part of that story and you're still part of this story. Yeah, right. Your purchase this month, you are now part of our journey. And so for me, it's critical to move what I would say kind of on that, you know, on the on the customer ladder of loyalty, I guess, you know, you'd say, I want to take someone from being, you know, a first-time customer who comes into the organisation not knowing anything about it. They might stumble upon us just because it's a convenience purchase or they're walking past. I don't want you to leave without having known something about street, but I want you to feel good about that purchase. I want you to go, hey, you know, this purchase has a story connected to it. But I also want you to, to over time, feel in a very intimate way that you've got more and more and more of a story, and that you you are seeing, you are seeing that you are moving beyond a customer to being a change maker. You are working on a change. customer for life strategy. You must have your loyalty must be high. Your retention rate of customers must be very high. 
incredibly high. We mm. did a customer loyalty um, study last year at our Melbourne Central site, which is the site that's been going for two years now. We had uh, we have at that site eighty two percent of our customers come at least three to four times a week. And when the very interesting thing that that study found is rather than customers coming to us because of our mission, most of the time customers were coming to us either because it was convenience or the product was good or they were almost kind of stumbling upon us. So it was, you know, they were literally walking past us. Now, they kept on coming back immediately because they were getting a very good coffee and they were getting a very good meal. So the product had to compete from the very first mouthful with, you know, it actually in most cases had to beat our competitors' products. Yeah. But as soon as that message started to, to kind of unravel more and more for you, what it meant is once you had dis- once you had realised the broader story and that you were part of so you know uh, you were part of that change happening for the young people, and the other thing is you were eyeballing the young person who was serving you. One meter away is the person who this coffee or this meal is helping, you know, is helping stop their homelessness. Beck, you and must I have a. Um, Sorry, you must have a um, clearly demand is outstripping supply. You've got two, three. You got two cafes, street uh, street carts. Um, you have got a whole lot of homeless people, who, homeless young people, thousands just in Melbourne alone who who need what you do. But uh, what do you do about that? You can only employ so many people in in that number of businesses. Look, that's absolutely right. And for me, the main, the critical thing is that as we scale our business, that we that we make sure that every minute of time available in that business to help young people who are highly disadvantaged, we are we are using those minutes in our business, so that when you come as a customer, you know my, and so as you come as a customer. You know that we have squeezed every last cent of social change that we can into that coffee or that meal. Mm-hmm. Now, my my number one KPI as Streets Leader is is to make sure that for every mouthful of food or coffee you have at Street, we bring about the most social change. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that that you know that relate to that. It's how well are we, how efficient are our operations. How many young people are we, you know, we're bringing in? How much are we able to scale the business? Because the more we scale the business, the more and more young people we can we can have in the business. So it's a, you know, it's a it's a fairly complex equation. But mm. I just get so excited about the future when we can say to customers, um, we are, you know, we have an ecosystem in this marketplace of businesses where every single purchase that you make from those businesses is bringing about good and you are part of that story. So, I, you know, that you don't stumble upon us, that someday you have a directory of yeah. amazing businesses and I say, I'm going to try wherever I can to support these businesses because I know that I, I bring about significant change. Now, no, I love that idea. you know, I would say to a customer, you know, yes, one coffee feels insignificant to you, but if 250,000 coffees and meals later and most of them being just little individual purchases, that makes a big difference. But if you say as a lot, you know, what I would say to customers when they're starting to think about being ethical consumers and going that next step, 
the little transactions that you make in the marketplace across your lifetime really, really matter. You, you know, you and I are going to have 80,000 meals in our lifetime. So it's not like, you know, each of those is insignificant. When mm. we make consistent choices as a consumer in the marketplace to align our spending with our values, we start to change the marketplace. We put a human face on that marketplace. We, we start to change capitalism from the inside out. And let's face it, big companies who don't act ethically are not there in and of themselves. They're only there because we purchase from them. So, you know, we are yeah, the ones, yeah, we're, we're the ones that help them grow. Capitalism looks like. <laughs> yeah, they don't, they're not like these behemoth organisations that have, have created themselves. Mm. They have created they have been created because we buy from them. Yeah. So if we want capitalism to, to look different, it's about how we spend even $1 differently. Um, so I you, you, you really make great reference to this in your um, you make great reference to this in your TEDx talk which I'm going to post as part of the show notes on episode 103 of small business big marketing listeners so go and have a look at it one one last question Beck um, and thanks so much for joining us and sharing this this journey um, how, how can listeners um, help grow street buying from us Become a customer. As much as, you know, we love donations, we love it even more when people start to buy from us. And the nice thing is that um, you don't have to be in Melbourne in the CBD to become one of those customers. You don't have to, you know, literally be able to rock up to a cafe. We have a coffee roasting business now that you can purchase coffee from across Australia. We have got a terrific um, crowdfunding campaign at the moment where our new cookbook that comes out in, in a couple of months' time, you can pre-order. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of ways. And then we've got, you know, amazing people who come to us and, you know, start to get involved in, pro, you know, projects and volunteer and become, you know, very much part of the, the street team and family. So, look, there are a whole bunch of ways. And, and the best thing to do, our, our website has got a, a bunch of suggestions for how people can get involved. Um, it's at www.street.com.au. And so there really, there really are from the smallest, smallest, seemingly insignificant things to big things that people mm. can do. And, and I would say all of those things matter. Love it. Rebecca Scott, co-founder of Social Enterprise Street, thanks a million for coming on Small Business Big Marketing. My absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed listening to that chat with Rebecca as much as I did putting it together. Um, great story. Uh, there's probably a whole lot more of those stories out there, which I'm going to go digging for. Um, I just think they're so inspiring and good on Rebecca and all those guys at Street for doing what they're doing. Please, listeners, go and visit Street, S-T-R-E-A-T dot com dot A-U. You can buy coffee. You can buy a bit of merch. They've got some T-shirts. Um, go, if you're in Melbourne or if you're ever in Melbourne, go and visit one of their cafes uh, or street carts um, and just support them because, you know, they're doing good things. And um, I just love the whole concept. So uh, thanks for listening. Visit smallbusinessbigmarketing.com if you want to join the tribe. Um, and as I said, next week, we have got the creator of America's Best Sandwich joining us, Little Cafe in Philadelphia. Really, really, I loved doing that interview. Um, just just a great story again. Um, and, you know, if you've got anyone you think worthy of being interviewed on the show because they're doing fantastic marketing, 
then feel free to put them in touch with me, tim at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. Until next week, may your marketing be the best marketing. Love your work. See ya. You've been listening to the Small Business Big Marketing Show with Tim Reid. Want more marketing goodness? Then visit smallbusinessbigmarketing.com.